really hard for me to interrupt you while you're praying. Sorry about that. But uh, if you have a Bible, go with me to the book of Matthew chapter 6. Finally, we get out of chapter 5. Matthew chapter 6. And uh, what we come to with this particular passage is, actually this is in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. But we'll be transitioning in our morning services before too long. Uh, out of a, a study of the Sermon on the Mount on Sunday mornings, we'll move it, a good portion of it, to Wednesday nights. And um, we'll do some other things with our Sunday morning, especially as we get into the Christmas season. But um, I, ha, <laughs> y'all remember in the late 80s and early 90s when the thing to have was a Rolex watch? So I worked with a guy, in, uh, he was a music minister at the church we were at in deep south Texas, and he has had to have a Rolex watch. The problem with that was he didn't have the budget to get one. So he decided that he would go across the Rio Grande River into Reynosa, and he bought himself a Rolex watch in Reynosa, Mexico, and he was... The cat's meow. He thought he had everything going his way. And he came to work one day, to the church one day, and uh, he was all down in the dumps. And I asked him, you know, Bob, what's the matter? He said, it's my watch. I said, your Rolex? Man, what could be wrong having a Rolex? And he just held his arm out like that. And his wrist was green. (laughs) And I said, well, what kind of disease is that? He said, they sold me a Rolex that was fake. I said, you think the $20 price tag on it might have been a little bit of a... <laughs> so let me pull that into the Christian life for you, all right? Don't settle for cheap substitutes in the Christian life. Uh, you'll be disappointed with it if you do. Um, that's especially true at what I consider to be the deepest point of privilege that we have as Christians. You can process through in your own uh, level of, of thinking what you think is the deepest privilege we have, but I think that the deepest privilege we have as Christian people is the opportunity for communion with God. Which brings us to Matthew chapter 6. Uh, In this little passage that we're going to look at tonight, and actually there's no way in the world I'm going to be able to get through all that I want to say tonight, and uh, next week is business meeting, so no Bible study. The following week, we don't have Wednesday night because it's Thanksgiving. That ought to put your calendar awareness in place. Uh, Then we get into, you know, the month of December, and so uh, I'm going to get as much as I can of this tonight, but we may have to come back to it, circle back at some point. But uh, in Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 8, Jesus gives us two wrongs and a right. And so let's look first at the wrongs. I'll start reading actually in chapter 6, verse 1. We have one of those umbrella statements by Jesus. He makes this statement and then he's going to hang a number of things underneath it to flesh out for us what it means. But here's the statement. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Now, here's the deal. Remember, on Sunday mornings, we're in Matthew chapter 5. We're in the Sermon on the Mount. 
the thesis of the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. You ought to be able to at least sort of quote it by now. We've been in it for a while. Unless your righteousness, you finish it for me. Unless your righteousness, okay, we had not been in it long enough, exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's the thesis for the whole thing. But now in chapter 6, there's a shift that occurs. It's still under that thesis statement, but Jesus adds a supporting thesis statement in verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. This is a statement of motive. And now he's going he's gonna to give us examples of that and some teaching in the process. So we drop down to verse 5. By the way, verses 2 through 4 talk about one of those big Jewish points of practicing their righteousness, which was almsgiving. Okay? They have three pillars uh, of piety in Judaism of the first century. And one of them was giving alms, helping people out who needed help. So Jesus uses verse 1. He talks about that, how not to do it. Another part of their deal was prayer. And remember that what we're doing on Wednesday nights right now is praying with Jesus. We're seeing what he modeled and what he teaches about prayer. So we jump to this teaching, verse 5. Excuse me a second. Eric, mute this, would you? Sorry about that, but that was better than coughing in your ear. Uh, So verse 5, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. And then Jesus gives what we call the model prayer. And we just spent about nine weeks working our way through the model prayer as Luke records it uh, on these Wednesday night deals. So two wrongs and a right that Jesus gives in this little passage. Here's the first wrong. Praying to impress people is wrong. That's what Jesus says. This is verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Let me stop for a second. Oh, and by the way, Jesus is fully on the offensive here. This is not one of those passive teachings that Jesus lays out. He is going after some of the abuses of the scribes and the Pharisees in his day. It happens to be an abuse that stretches into our day also. And that is a motivation to be seen by other people. And so Jesus calls not just those guys, but whoever does this kind of prayer, he calls them hypocrites. It's a word that comes out of Greco-Roman society and especially in the, the, uh, the dramas of their day. You know, the amphitheaters and the acting and those kind of things. A hypocrite was an actor. He hold up a a mask in front of his face and he would play the part in that particular dramatic uh, presentation and if he needed to be a different character he'd take that mask away and hold up a different one. That's the word here and that's the picture. Jesus is saying that these people are role players. They make you think one thing but the reality is something else and so we continue reading. When you pray you must not be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, 
It's important that we know a little bit about how Jewish prayer worked. Maybe the best way for me to communicate this to you is modern-day Islamic Muslim people as they go to prayer. Now, most of us know just because of life in 21st century America that they pray five times a day at certain times. For the Jews, it was three times a day, 9, 12, and 3 o'clock. And wherever they were, they were to stop what they were doing. They were supposed to pray. It was supposed to be a vocal prayer. And it was supposed to be one of those things that it was just part of everyday life. But what happens with that, or what happened with that in those days, is those people who especially wanted to have the respect of everybody else, the pious ones, Jesus calls them scribes and Pharisees, they would see to it that at 9 o'clock, 12 o'clock, and 3 o'clock, the way we keep time, that when it was time to pray, they would be in spots that were very visible. And so what they wanted was for people to see how well they kept to the law of prayer and how flowery, I mean, they had set prayers that they had to pray, uh, but they used it in such a way as to promote themselves. And Jesus goes to the motive of this kind of prayer. We finish reading verse 5. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Their goal in prayer was to impress other people. I need to be careful how I speak to this because I think it's easy for us to fall into that same trap. Um. One of, the, one of the, uh, the inherent dangers in prayer uh, is that we never answer the question, why do we pray? I, I would encourage you in prayer to pursue some answers to that question with God. Why do we pray? Is it to get God to do what we want? I'll get to that in a minute. Is it... Because it's just one of those things that's part of the religious mechanisms of our day. We, we grew up in churches that prayed, and so we believe we ought to pray. Why do we do church prayer on Wednesday night the way we do it? Now, hear this. I, I'm glad we do. I'm, I, we, we will continue to do prayer like this on Wednesday night. Now, we may adjust a few things as we go. But this is a good thing that we do. But why do we do it? The real way to answer that is why do you do it? When you go to pray, whether it's in here or at home or in your Sunday school class or wherever it is, what is the driving motive that you have? What Jesus says about these people, there's a much more that I could say about that, is they're doing it so that they could be seen by other people. When Teresa and I first got married, we started a family practice that had, I can't speak for her, it can only speak for me, right? We started a family practice that had zero meaning for me. I'm not proud of that, I'm just being honest with you. I grew up in a family that when it was time to eat, you prayed before you ate. So when we got married, we prayed before we ate. Any meal, no matter when it was, where it was, out in a restaurant, at home, didn't matter where it was, we were going to say a prayer before we ate. Now, most of you probably either have done or still do the same thing. We still do the same thing. We go out uh, into a restaurant, 
we stop and we pray. Is it okay not to do that? God will make you choke on that food if you don't. Her, her stepfather-in-law said, uh, if you forgot to pray at the beginning, you should pray at the end. God bless this food. What, how did he say that? Yeah, bless this bunch as we munch our lunch. Okay, so here's the deal. That might fall into what Jesus is saying is wrong. Because it plays well, it sounds sing-song, and it gets a laugh off of the dinner table. But what does God think of that? Jesus says, be careful that you don't pray to impress other people. That's his first fault. Here's the second wrong. I could, I could go into a lot more detail with that, but uh, it's a little too direct, and it's a little bit too time-consuming. I'll just finish it this way. I had a friend of mine uh, who used to meet with me in my office when I was in deep South Texas, and we would pray together. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't invite that at first. He just showed up one day, and he said, I was driving by, and I felt like the Lord said, I need to stop and pray with you. Well, that's all well and good, but I'm busy. That's what my head said, but my mouth didn't say that. And so Al came in, and he sat down with me, and we prayed. But Al, Al had a way of praying that challenged me. You know how a lot of times preachers or people in church, when they pray, their tone of voice changes? Dear God, we'll just thank you so much. Al didn't do that kind of prayer. Al talked to God like he was sitting in the chair next to him. It was conversational, it was personal, and it was moving to me. But Al didn't do it to move me. Al did it because that's how Al prayed. That was a point of communion with him and God that nobody else, it was like nobody else was around, just him and God. Don't settle for cheap counterfeits in the most important privilege we have as Christians, which is to commune with God. And one of the ways we settle for cheap counterfeits is to pray to impress people. There's another part of this where we pr- that's wrong, Jesus says, and that's where we pray to impress God. Verse 7, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. In, in first century uh, Greco-Roman life, or the, the pagans as well as the Jews and all of that, uh, there was this, this uh, kind of a, what's the right word, folklore kind of thing. That's really not the right word. The superstition. That was, if you could name the God, and I'm thinking Roman life with a small g, you could name the God that was at work in a circumstance, then it gave you power over that God. By the way, when you go to read the Gospels and you see Jesus, he deals with demons, and the demons want to know his name, or they call his name, you're so-and-so, then that's playing out some of that in that first century life. It's that idea that says, if I can put a name on you, then I can control you. And so that's kind of the background with some of what we see here. Uh, So their prayers often became this elaborate attempt to manipulate God. That's not too hard for us to apply. 
But there's a term that's used here that Jesus uses here that looks like he coined a whole new term. In other words, Jesus picks, picks a word that captures what he's talking about, and it doesn't seem to have been, we haven't found it being used anywhere else. Uh, let me try that on you. Here's a word for you. You tell me what it means. It's an English word, okay? Bada, 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 bada. What does that mean? Anybody play baseball? So the outfield and the infield say to the guy batting, hey, batter, 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 swing batter, right? That's a word that's really not a word that we coined it, but if you're in baseball, you know exactly what it means. Okay, that's kind of what's going on here. Jesus seems to coin a word here that speaks directly to this idea of trying to impress God or manipulate God with prayer. If we're not careful... Our prayer falls into that model. I think this is one of the greatest temptations we have in prayer. Is to go to God and say to him, here's a blank check on your account. All you need to do is sign it, and I'll fill it out with what I want it to be. And we do that well-intentioned, but we have to be really careful. Because if we're not careful, it means that we're trying to get God to do our will rather than bending our need to his will. We saw that in the model prayer. Our Father, the one who's in heaven, let your name be holy. Prayer is a positioning tool for us, and it begins with allowing God to be God. And we come into that as, a, as an understanding of we are privileged to be here. We have the opportunity to commune with a holy God. And the best, smartest prayer we can pray is, not my will, but yours. We're going to get to Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. That'll challenge us. So be careful that we don't fall into this wrong that we see him addressing here where we try to get God to do what we want him to do, praying to impress him. Uh, So here's the right, and I'll mention this and we'll go. Verse 6, right in the middle of it all. But when you pray, he says, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your father who is in secret. This offsets those who are praying, the hypocrites, he says, who are praying to be seen by other people. And the synagogues on the street corners, they, they position themselves at strategic times of prayer so other people who will look at them and go, oh my goodness, look how holy that person is. Jesus says, go into the inner room. Go to that place where it's just you and God. Do you have that place? I, I love what uh, one of the guys I like to read, one of the best... Um, Commentaries, I guess, on the Sermon on the Mount is by Carl Vaught, who was a philosophy professor, religion professor at Baylor for a long time. Great book on the Sermon on the Mount. And he talks about this little passage, this verse, as it relates to his dad. And he said he grew up watching his dad. He would come in every once in a while early in the morning, and he, he would see his dad seated over in one part of a kind of a private area of their house, wrapped up in a down blanket praying and somewhere he became aware of this verse and this passage and it connected for him he said my dad was in his room inside praying and then he said over a period of time God began to work on him about that and he realized that the room that his dad had was not the physical location it was the place 
inside of him where he pushed everything else to the side and just him and God in communion in prayer. So if you don't have a place like that, I'm going to encourage you to find a place like that. This, okay, let me just tell you, this cannot be your office, all right? For those of you who have businesses and you go to work, you can't do this at your office because your office place carries connotations in your head of, I'm here, I need to be working. This is a place that is dedicated. Uh, I would tell you where it is for me, but I don't want any people showing up while I'm in there. Uh, but mostly it doesn't have to be a physical location. It has to be that place in your schedule, that place in your heart that you set it aside for God, and no matter what else is going on, it's just you and God there. That's the right that Jesus gives here. The wrong is don't pray to impress people. Don't pray to impress God. The right is find that place and celebrate communion with him. One of my favorite stories comes from Richard Foster. If you don't know who he is, he's a great writer, a Quaker preacher who uh, has been uh, a leader in the study of spiritual formation for the last 30 years or more. I had a chance to visit with him. I think I told you that before, but um, I had a chance to visit with him, and, and I went back in that conversation I had with him to one of my favorite stories that he told uh, it was about a guy, I think it was in his church, I'm not sure about that, but he knew of a guy who had his, uh, a dad and he had a young child and the young child was way out of control at the mall one day. Tells you how long ago it was, there was a mall. But uh, he, the dad with this little kid at the mall and the kid was throwing a fit and screaming and all that stuff and the dad was embarrassed and, and he tried everything, you know, go back to what I preached Sunday, he tried threatening him, that didn't work. Uh, he tried... You know, all that he knew to try, couldn't get the kid to stop screaming and throwing a fit. And finally, Foster said he reached down and he grabbed that kid and he pulled him up and he held him close like this. Of course, the kid was squirming and all that, and the dad started singing to him. And he said, Dad wasn't a singer, (laughs) but it wasn't about everybody else around. It was about him and that kid. And he didn't have a song particularly. He just started singing that kid's name and stuff, and I love, and he called his name, and he just singing that stuff, kept repeating his name in the midst of that while he held him close, and he said as he was singing that kid's name, he, the kid just relaxed, and he settled in, and he settled in enough that Foster says that the guy stopped singing, and the kid looked at his daddy, and he said, sing it again, daddy, sing it again. Foster says that's a great picture of what prayer is. When you are beside yourself because what life throws at you, find that spot where you can let God pick you up and sing peace to you. Communion with God beats religious stuff hands down. Don't settle for a cheap substitute when you can have communion with God. Thank you for being here. God bless you. You're dismissed.